Well, thank you for uh, being here, and um, thank you for thank you, Pastor Mark, for the opportunity of uh, being able to do this during my Christmas break. Um, so, uh, um, uh, Pastor uh, called and asked if I'd be willing to uh, speak today, and it's right in the middle of Christmas break, which usually for a teacher that's kind of you know off limits, you know, and everything else, but. I thought it was really cool that uh, he asked me, and I'm honored to be able to stand here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to kind of review a little bit for a little bit, uh, talking about uh, the Christmas story and uh, looking at the Christmas story, not, not the way the pastor did, because Pastor Mark, if you remember, uh, the last, last week he went through... Uh, uh, talking about the faith of Mary, and uh, he went through and looked at uh, look at the passage in Luke chapter one and uh, Luke chapter two, and he talked about how Elizabeth, when she heard the message and the uh, that she was going to have a baby, and she you know she was uh, uh, related to Mary, and she was older, and she of course John the Baptist. We learned that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus, and uh, then the the angel visits Mary and tells Mary that uh, she's going to have a baby, and she makes the the incredible statement, you know, how can this be? I've I've never been with a man, and we see uh, that the angel tells her that what's going to happen, and we see the faith of these two women, and then if you remember, we saw with Zechariah, we saw a man who was in in leadership. He was a priest and. Uh, when the angel told him, you're going to have a son, he goes, no way, I'm too old, you know. And so you see the difference. And, of course, that's usually the way it is with us guys. We are the ones that really uh, look to the faith, really, of, of our wives, of, our, of, of the women. And I find out, I find that in Scripture, one of the things that we see is that the women many times are the leaders when it comes to matters of faith. And uh, for me, it's just an interesting thing. And so, well, I'm, uh, I'm entitling this, uh, Can We Trust the Christmas Story? Can we actually trust the Christmas story? Or another way to look at it is, can we really trust the Bible? Now, as an apologetics teacher, what apologetics is, is actually saying to give reasons why we know something is true. This actually comes from a, uh, apologetics actually comes from a Greek word, which is really uh, a law term, apologia, which just means to give a defense for something that is true. And so I uh, spent most of my life looking at Christianity and deciding whether or not looking at it to see it's one of two things are, 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 are true about, about the Bible and about Christianity. Either Christianity is true or it's not true. Either, either the Bible is telling me the truth or it's not telling me the truth. And so when I look at it that way, I think that if it's not telling me the truth, then there ought to be reasons why I can show that it's not telling me the truth. But if it is telling me the truth, then I think that we ought to be able to see that there are real reasons we can know that the Bible is telling me the truth and that Christianity really is true. Now, that's kind of what apologetics is in a nutshell. Now, 
I teach apologetics at Legacy Christian Academy just right down the road in Frisco and have been there uh, for about 13, 14 years. And uh, teaching apologetics in high school is a little bit different than it is speaking on a Sunday morning in church. I just want you to know. And so uh, if you really want to make me feel at home as a high school teacher, then what you would do is do a big yawn somewhere in the middle of it, would make me feel right at home, or in the middle of it, you know, just raise your hand like you got the most burning question that you could ever ask, and the question would be something like this that I would hear, would be, Mr. Littleton, can I go to the bathroom right now? And so, uh, so those are kind of the things, the, the way I teach with when you're teaching 16 and 17 years old, and I love every minute of it. And I love doing it. And of course, I coached football for about um, 37 of the years. And uh, one, of my, one of my dear friends, who's also a member here, um, Mr. Lynn Dupree, he was uh, uh, my long-term, uh, long-time uh, athletic director when I was coaching. And now he's, he's my boss at school. He's an assistant principal. And he keeps all the kids in line, which is really, really good. So I'm thankful that I get to... Uh, have a, have a ministry to where I get to talk to students on a daily basis and letting them know that not only do I believe the Christmas story is true, not only do I believe Christianity is true, but I think I can give good reasons to know why it is true. And you see, I think that God has allowed us to look at Scripture, to look at things even outside of Scripture, and we can come to a conclusion that our faith is a reasonable faith, that there really is something that's reasonable about uh, the Word of God. There's something reasonable about what we believe about this whole Christian story about Jesus. Now today, I'm just going to look at just a few things just really, really quickly uh, for time's sake. And uh, one of the things as I talk about, can we trust can we trust the Christmas story? Can we trust this? Now, a couple of years ago, and, I, and I'm thinking about uh, Doyle and Martha Shipman this morning and, you know, and the, the things that they, the, the, the journey that they've been on with Doyle uh, having to have surgery again and uh, Martha's in the hospital with him and taking care of him. And uh, I think back to when Doyle asked me to teach Sunday school in his Sunday school class, and how I miss, I know y'all do too, how we miss that Sunday school class when Doyle and Martha were uh, leading it. And uh, so one day he was going to be out of town. He asked me if I would, I would teach. And so I kind of started off and I asked the question, you know, why are you a Christian? And we kind of went around the table and everybody gave great answers. And I remember when it got to Sonoa Pecola, and she looked at me with that stern look that she can give you. And she said, because it's true. And I thought, that's the answer. That's it. That's it. Because you know why? Why I'm a Christian? Because it's true. And I think it's something that when you're out and people ask you questions and they say, you know, why do you, why do you go to that church? Why do you go to the church? Well, because it's true. Christianity is really true. And you'd, you'd, you'd be amazed at the, the conversations that begin to come up when you say that. And a lot of times we give, we kind of give standard Christian answers like, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. Those are good and those are, that's true. 
but when you say things like, I believe it because it's true, people want to know, well, how do you know it's true? And I think it's something for us to understand. Well, if you look at Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read it real quickly, then I'm going to kind of steer away from it and, and review. And uh, uh, this is on, can we trust, trust the, the, the Bible? Can we trust the, really the, the whole Christmas story? Can we really trust it? And I have, and I think I've got this on one of those slides, yeah, a picture of this book. A friend of mine who was supposed to be here just before COVID hit, we had planned for Dr. Peter Williams to be a special speaker here. Uh, he's a scholar from Cambridge University, biblical scholar, good friend of mine. And uh, he wrote this book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Now, if you notice, it's not very big. It's not very thick. And, and the day we live in, this is the kind of book that people like to read, one that's not very big, you know. And so I would commend to you this book to be able to read if you really want to get into some, some uh, reasons why we can really trust this whole story of Jesus and who he is. And so as we get into this, let me read real quickly Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I want you to just listen to the words. It says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about you have been instructed. Now, notice some of the language that he uses there. Now, here's what I'm going to say, and I'm going to kind of go through these as quickly as I can. And so, uh, ask the, when I ask the question, why are you a Christian? And if people ask you the question, why are you a Christian? I think a good answer is because it's true. And uh, there are many good answers, and I, I know that. Uh, but I think it's a real good response just to say that because it really is true. And I remember when Sonoa looked at me with that stern look and said, because it's true, you know, and it was, and there was a conviction in there, which made me want to say, well, 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 good. Well, but how do you know? How do you know it's true? Well, last week, Pastor Mark emphasized Mary's faith. And then uh, during the, uh, uh, the Christmas Eve service, he went on and told the Christmas story. And he talked about the faith of, of Mary and what she did and how she listened as the angel came and as she looked at these things. And can you imagine putting yourself in her, her shoes? And I, I can't even imagine it. But isn't it, uh, isn't it interesting that she said, okay, I'm going to do this. I believe it. I believe it's true. Because she had faith. And Mark, Mark went through uh, really how her faith really sustained her. And then, of course, then at uh, the Christmas Eve service, he went through and, and gave us that Christmas story and uh, how the shepherds came. And hopefully as you read those stories, you'll read them with the details in mind. And so uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, we talk about faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith uh, very specifically. And a lot of times we think of faith as just believing and that's all there is to it. As long as I believe, I believe, I believe, and that's going to make it right. And people even try to exercise some of that when they come to the lottery or something. You know, I believe this is going to work. I believe it's going to work. You know, and of course, you know, it doesn't. Uh, but that's not what faith is. 
And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews defines faith. And I like the way the old King James Version put this. But it defines faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And notice what faith is. The two things. It's substance and evidence. You see, we're, we're, we're not called to believe and just believe because there's a story. But, but the Bible even encourages us to believe because there's substance with what's going on and there really is evidence. And apologetics is really dealing with the evidence. And so one of the things that Paul taught us, he taught us what the opposite of faith is. And remember what Paul said. He said, we walk by faith, not by not by sight. And the opposite of faith is sight and seeing. And so there's a difference between seeing something happen and then believing something happened because of the evidence. You see, um, we believe, and it's what, what we were reminded and what, what Jesus even reminded his disciples. He said, you guys believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who will come after you who will believe having not seen. And that's us. And uh, why? Because we have the evidence that's there. We see it. Uh, we can, we can uh, discover the evidence and we can evaluate it. And we can go through it and we can realize. And that's what faith is. Another idea of, of faith is the idea of trust. So the, the question then becomes this. Not only do I have faith in the Bible, but can I really trust the Gospels? And then, so, here's one of the things I want to say. I think we can be on the offense for this, not just defense. I think we really can be on the off offensive with this when we talk about uh, what, we, uh, what we know about the Scriptures. So far from being something that's in just total need of defending, that I'm always in a defensive posture to defend the Bible, defend Christianity, I think the Bible presents a major challenge to modern society in at least three ways. And one of those ways is prophecy. We look at the prophecies, and one of the things about the prophecies we realize, and Pastor did a great job going through these, about the, the prophecies of the birth of our Savior and then the Christmas story. As we go through Isaiah, we go through Micah, we go through all the different prophecies, and the prophecies are very, very strong. And um, uh, looking at those, now, Here's, here's the thing, that uh, in, uh, in the 1800s, um, this idea of prophecies, that there were so many prophecies in the Bible, over 300 prophecies in the Bible about, about Jesus, that he was going to come. And so people began to attack those in, as, uh, in the 1800s. And of course, in the 1800s, remember from your study of history that, you know, Charles Darwin came up with the origin of species. And and in doing so, in coming up with those things, uh, people began to look and say, well, maybe this idea of the Bible, maybe, maybe there's something, maybe the Bible is, you know, it was kind of an evolved book that, you know, over time and over time uh, that the prophecies were added. And maybe the prophecies were even added after the New Testament was written. And so there was some kind of almost like a big conspiracy theory of how the Bible came to be to where you had all the prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. And then, uh, of course, something happened in the 1940s, uh, a little archaeological discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
And those Dead Sea Scrolls have Old Testament prophecies that predated the birth of Jesus. Now, how could that be? Well, maybe because the prophecies are real. And so we, we see things happening. And so we look at prophecy, and we realize that prophecy in the Bible powerfully challenges us by showing that there is a God who really is in control. And not only does he know what the past is, but he knows the future. And then the second thing is the resurrection. We sang about it today. And I think everything that we look at in Christianity really points towards the resurrection. And that's why I love to sing the songs that t tell me about that I, I serve a risen Savior and that he really did rise from the dead. And I think we can really show that. I think there really is good evidence to show that. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that everyone needs to respond to his claims, that Jesus didn't just die on a cross, but that he really did rise the third day according to the scriptures. And then I think that we also can show that the Bible, in the Bible, we have a superior morality. And it's one of the things that I think a lot of people overlook. But the morality in the Bible advocates that it advocates is not inferior or some kind of primitive morality. On the other hand, it is so high that it highlights how sinful our culture is. Not only how sinful our culture, but really how bad we can be. And yet, isn't there a remedy for that? And you remember, and Pastor Mark did a good job of doing this, but he talked about the golden rule. And as Jesus came and he gave us that idea of the golden rule, that within each one of us, every one of us has built within us this more superior moral code that we know how to treat other people. And the way we know how to treat other people, Jesus tells us, is because it's the way we want to be treated. And you see, this superior morality, now look, it changed the whole world on this idea of the, the, the morality, the way it looked. And so I think I have a quote from uh, W.E.H. Leckie, an Irish historian who was not a believer, but he, when, he, when he looked at this, and I think, I, yes, I have the quote up there, he says it this way, the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Now, this is a man talking about Jesus, and he doesn't really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But what he says is this, that Jesus taught us a moral lesson that nobody else had ever gotten. And see, it's not some kind of karma that Jesus is telling us. He's not telling us that if you do something bad, something bad's going to happen to you. Or if you do something good, something good's going to happen to you. That's not what he's teaching. What Jesus is teaching us, he's teaching us how to treat others. Why? Because we know how we want to be treated. And, the, and uh, think about that. Do, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Completely changing the morality of the world with this person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was really around for about three, three and a half years and, and really had this ministry for that. And here we are 
2,000 years later, still talking about him. Now, now, something big had to happen. Something big had to happen for us to be able to do this. Now, uh, obviously, it's the resurrection. Now, Paul explains the importance of the resurrection. And so, go on to the next. And Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is worthless. And he says, you're still under condemnation for your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. In other words, what Paul's saying, you take the resurrection away, and this idea of Jesus is just another story. And everybody's just dying, and that's all there is to it, and there is no hope. And then it simply means this, that if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is false. Paul even writes a few verses later, he says, if the dead are not raised, then he says this, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You see, Paul says that if Jesus did not rise, then we might as well just live it up. Why? Because that's all there is to life. As he's quoting those Epicurean philosophers of his day, that their idea was, look, we're all going to die and that's all there is to it. Every day you're just one day closer to death. Now think about that life. So what are you going to do? You're going to live it all up just because that's all there is to it. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus tells us that resurrection is for us all. And uh, so my point is this. See how important the resurrection is. And so the resurrection then leaves no room for error or ambiguity. So either Jesus rose from the grave and confirmed who he is, or he did not rise from the dead, and he's just another fraud in history. This external or historical test, and again, remember, it's a historical test. It's exclusive to Christianity. It substantiates the internal test that what we believe comes from God. And Romans 8, 16 tells us that the assurance of this comes from the Holy Spirit. And I love this idea that I can have this properly basic belief in Christianity. And it's dependent on the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the greatest apologetic we have in our own lives is not that we can come up with all the proofs. Not that we can come up with all the, all the uh, evidences. Not that we can come up with all the arguments. But it's the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that he tells me that this is real. And I know this, that uh, when I met my wife, I met a person who believed this with all of her heart. And it wasn't apologetics that made her believe it. What made her believe it was that she had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit uh, gave witness to her that this is real. And I hope that's part of your life because I think that's the strongest apologetic that we can have. But there are other things that we can go on. There are other reasons. So I say this, that Christianity has the complete test of truth. The internal evidence of Jesus' resurrection, or excuse me, the external evidence of Jesus' resurrection confirm the truth that we have received via God's written revelation. And that's from one of my old professors. Excuse me. He'll get on to me if he hears that I called him an old professor. One of my former professors, Dr. Gary Habermas at Liberty University. And so, can we actually trust the Bible? Uh, 
can we actually trust it? And I think that, yes, we can. And I, I give an acronym of N-A-M-E-S, the word names. And one of the things I want to do is it wants to focus on the word names. But I give five different areas where I look at how I know I can trust the Bible. And one of those areas is what's known as non-Christian writings, the non-Christian writings from the day. And we go back in history and look at what historians like uh, Josephus, like Pliny the Younger, like Tacitus, and some of the others had said about all these stories and what was happening about who Jesus was. And so it's not just that it's written in the Bible, but it's actually written in real other histories that are outside the Bible. And I'll call those non-Christian uh, sources. And then I look at archaeological evidence. And we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls just a few seconds ago and how the Dead Sea Scrolls really authenticated several things for us, that the prophecies existed before the New Testament was written. And number two, we see the transmission process of the Old Testament all the way down through the ages up until at least through the 10th century AD, that it was copied correctly. And it gives me uh, confidence that I can know that through the ages that the Bible that was given to us years and years and years ago is the same Bible that I can read today. And then uh, the manuscript evidence, and it won't, won't get into that, but the manuscript evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, and then the eyewitness testimonies, and we look at Scripture, one of the things that stands out for me is all the eyewitnesses. And if you recall, in Luke chapter 1, and Luke appealed to the eyewitnesses. And he appeals to the eyewitnesses. And so uh, that's important for us to keep in our mind. And then I do another thing called statistics of names. If we just look at the names, and we may look at a few of those in, in, uh, today, and uh, we'll, we'll show you what I mean by that. But look at the next thing. I'm going to go just real quickly. I'm not going to read all these for you uh, because of time. But the non-Christian sources, and just look at this list and look at the things that non-Christian writers, and what I mean by non-Christian writers, I mean historians that are living at the time of Christ or just after the time of Christ, and look at what they say uh, happened. So whether I had the Bible or not, and I just had these exterior um, uh, non-Christian sources, I could get some of the, almost the same story. Notice this, that Jesus lived at the time of Tiberius Caesar. He, had a, he was a virtuous life. And I, I like number three, that it was known that Jesus was a wonder worker. In other words, that he, he did miracles. And one of the things you find out, and uh, uh, Dr. Peter Williams, is, uh, who was supposed to be here, you know, I mentioned him before, but at his... Uh, he actually is a, a, a professor at Cambridge University in uh, biblical history and biblical languages uh, and a scholar like no other. And, uh, but at his library, they actually have uh, access to things that most people would never have access to. And, and one of those things that he, he's, he's shown me is that they actually can look at the, uh, some of the ancient uh, charge sheets of Jesus, what they charged him of when Jesus was arrested. And one of the things they charged him with was sorcery. And the idea of sorcery was 
doing miracles, not, not magic tricks, but real miracles in the power of Satan. And remember, the Bible even tells us that. And Jesus pronounced these series of woes on all the scribes and Pharisees. He says, when you call the power of God the power of Satan, you've gone too far. And so we know that it was one of the actual charges that they brought against Jesus. And we can see this from outside, that he really did miracles. He was really known to be a miracle. And then we know that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, number 11, or excuse me, number 10, the disciples were willing to die for their belief that he rose from the dead. And then uh, number 12, the disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus. This is important as God, that he really is the Son of God. And so uh, I, I bring in this next slide which says the importance of studying history. And I think this is an important thing for us to understand that we are all called as Christians not just to know the history of our Bible, not just to read our Bible, but if you read the Bible and that's all you did, you would be reading history. That's real history. And uh, so here's the importance of studying history. We must remember that the Bible is written in a historical setting, that it's real history. It's not like Bible history is over here and then real history is over here. You know, uh, when I was a little kid, that's kind of the way I, I thought of it. I thought of, okay, we're going to go to church on Sunday and we're going to hear what the Bible says. But then we're going to go to school on Monday and we're going to hear what real history says. And that was kind of the way I, I looked at it. And you see, that's not the way it is. It's real history. It's just as real as any history. As a matter of fact, it's really been proven and proven and proven over and over again. So the Bible is real history. Then I think there's a mastery of dates and events is essential. And again, remember, I'm a school teacher, so you, know, you got to emphasize the dates and everything else. And, uh, so, but I really do think it's, it's important for us to keep that. And then all of history, and this is all of history, remember this, and when you're watching the news... And you're seeing history unfold before your eyes. Remember this, all of history is showing God's plan. And I think it's just amazing in the world we're living in and the things that are happening, how God is unfolding his plan before our eyes. And then the fifth one I say is biblical history is not separate from the rest of history. It really is. And so let's go back to Luke chapter 1. And I want you to notice the details. I want you to notice the details. Luke chapter 1, notice what he says. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things which you have been instructed. And I want you to see what Luke is actually telling us. Remember, he's about to get into the story of John, the, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of our Lord and Savior. And he's about to get into it. And he said, he's just now given us this introduction as a historian would, would give. Now, he's, he's not just setting the stage for us. He's actually telling us that, listen, as a historian, I know what I'm doing. 
and I've carefully investigated everything. And I'm not going to write this unless I know it to be true and I've talked to the eyewitnesses. And notice that Luke doesn't himself claim to be an eyewitness, but he claims to have investigated and talked to the eyewitnesses. And notice that he said there are many people have been trying to tell these stories, he said, but let's put this together and let's get it. And notice where he goes. He goes to the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of our Lord and Savior. And then he begins and talks about the ministry of Jesus and goes through uh, the entire gospel. And I want you to see as we're noticing details, maybe you've never read the Bible by looking at details, but I think it's one of the ways that we need to read the Bible, looking at the details. And so I, the next slide that I have, I call corroboration. We just look at this. This is something that um, Lydia McGrew, who's a, a Bible scholar, she calls this uh, uh, uh uh, let's see, what's it? What's she call it? Something coincidences. But the idea is this, is that these are not forced. They just show up in the Bible. Uh, undesigned coincidences, that's the word she uses. But if you know the story of feeding of the 5,000, I want you to look at this. And we're looking at this from the Gospels, from the different Gospel accounts. And you see how each Gospel writer is telling the story from their own point of view. And as they tell the stories from their own point of view, they're leading us into the direction of truth. And if we put the, put the details together, and as we put those details together, we come away saying, wow, look at what they're saying. And look at what, what they're saying in feeding the 5,000. I'm just going through and looking at how they knew it was 5,000. That's, that's a whole other story altogether. But notice this. They're feeding the 5,000. Mark said that there was green grass where there were. John just tells us that there was much grass. And then Mark tells us there were many people coming and going during this time. And then John chapter 6 tells us it's Passover time. Well, no wonder many people are coming and going. You see, and, uh, and then uh, John says, uh, shows us that Jesus asked Philip specifically, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Notice how Jesus cares about us, wants to feed us. And he says, where can we buy bread? Now, notice this, that he asked Philip. And then in verse 7 and 8, we see that Philip and both Philip and Andrew reply. And then Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that the feeding is near Bethsaida, the city of Bethsaida. And then we find out that Philip and Andrew were both from Bethsaida. Do you see why you ask them? I mean, you put it all together and the story makes sense. And then John chapter 6 tells us that it was barley loaves. Barley loaves. And here's one of the cool things is that at Passover time, we know that the barley harvest is plenteous. Notice how all these details just work together. Work together and they work together. And here it is, the Bible. The Bible's not scared of the details. The writers aren't scared of the details. And if you, if you go into the skeptics and listen to the skeptics and listen... We're, we're in the season of skeptics right now. And there are two favorite seasons to be skeptical about the Bible are Christmas and Easter. And it's amazing. You just watch the History Channel. They're going to talk about all these Gnostic Gospels and all the different things. They're going to they're rely on them more than they're going to rely on this. But they, they don't pass the test that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. And so it's an interesting thing to see. 
And so notice the details and then look at Luke chapter 3 real quickly. You, you don't have to turn. We can do it real quick right here. Notice these details, what Luke says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, here's, here's what I'm going to ask. Does it sound like he's making this up? Not at all. Notice that what he's telling us. He's, he's not just saying, you know, you remember, you know, when Caiaphas was on? You remember when he was the high priest? Or any, he doesn't tell us that. He tells us more than that. He's pinpointing an exact date. He's pinpointing an exact time. And by the way, all the people that he mentioned have been affirmed and confirmed through archaeology and other resources. We know them to be not only real people, but people who lived during this time. And then I want you to see this, and I think this is really, really cool. And I talk about statistics of names, and if you see the next, this is the, the names of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles from Matthew. And I put a number. This is from research that really is, that just came out in 2003. It's done by a German researcher who went and, and looked at the names of people. What were their names? And what was the percentage of names? Like, what was the most common name? What was the, next, what was the least common name? And she did it through all different places, all throughout the Holy Land and different time periods. And it was her PhD research project. And uh, she put it together. And then a, a British biblical researcher says, well, let's, let's put this test to the Bible and see how the Bible shows up. And so... Uh, in it, we know this. And so look at the numbers that are out beside the names of the apostles. And the number that's out beside them is their, uh, how common the name was. For example, the name Simon was the most common name. Now notice this. Notice this. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon. Notice the number one, the most common name. But notice the little extra. Because Simon was such a common name. But you have to have, which Simon are you talking about? But notice the writers do this just naturally. Um, years ago, I, when I was teaching in Garland, I had a, an inordinate amount of young men named Jason in my classes. And so we always had a joke that if something bad happened, it was probably Jason's fault because there were so many of them. Now, was it going to be Jason Harn? Was it going to be Jason Henderson? Uh, which Jason was it going to be? Was it going to be Jason Alcorn? Was it going to be Jason Williamson? My bet would have been on Jason Williamson, you know. But but what what who what, which one of them was it going to be? You know what we what we call that? They call that scholars call that disambiguation. Big word meaning we got to know which one you're talking about. And so notice how this in this list that we've seen many times, but we may have never have noticed Simon. It was called P Peter, then Andrew, his brother, and then James, 11th most frequent. It's a high-frequency name. The son of Zebedee, and John, 5th most popular name, his brother. Then Philip, who was 61st, it's kind of 61st equal, of not a very common name, but notice this, there's no 
There's no last name or disambiguation going with this. Philip and Bartholomew, again, not a common name. We just do that. Then Thomas, not even on the list. Thomas and then Matthew, ninth common name. Notice what he adds a little bit with that, the tax collector. James, again, the 11th most common name, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, not a common name. Then Simon, again, another Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now look, they've been in Scripture all the time. All these details are there. And so I like to end with this. Uh, do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Remember the song? Those of you that are old enough to remember. I don't know if they still sing the songs, but you remember? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Notice this. Maybe you never noticed. But he didn't just climb up in a tree. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And when we were little kids singing that, we were getting details. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. The story of Zacchaeus takes place in Jericho. Guess what tree is abundant in Jericho? Sycamore trees. Now notice this, the writer doesn't say he just climbed up some old tall tree. Why does he give us the sycamore tree? Because it was a sycamore tree he climbed in. And he's not trying to fool us. He's not trying to, he's telling the story because the story is true. And so you see this. So here's one of my conclusions. It's fact, it's not fiction. If it said Jesus said it, then he really said it. If it said Jesus did it, then I believe Jesus really did it. And I want to conclude with this. this there's not a slide this, so listen carefully to this. And I'm going to quote Dr. Williams uh, from his book, just about two sentences. And I want you to get this because this is, this is the crux of Christianity right here. If Jesus is the Word, with a capital W, who is co-eternal with God, and the one who has come to save the world, then the question of the trustworthiness of the Gospels is not a mere issue of historical interest. If the picture in the Gospels is basically true, it logically demands that we give up possession of our lives to serve Jesus Christ, who said repeatedly in every Gospel, follow me. And that's our command to follow him. And so my invitation to you and the is the invitation that Jesus gives us. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. And bless this time of invitation. In Jesus' name.